to positions of hopelessness and helplessness. The government gives them the drugs, builds bigger prisons, passes a three-strike law, and then wants us to sing God Bless America. No, no, no. over because I smoked cigarettes and drank alcohol and I sound like RFK today. <laughs> Is this ableist for me to make fun of his voice? I mean, as I've said before, I think it would be ableist not to because he's a presidential candidate and they all get they get impressions. If you're running for president, there should be an impression of you. That's just the way America works. Oh, if he won, there would be a great like the uh, SNL or whatever would be really funny because somebody would have to be like, hello, I am. A, uh. He sounds like a white rapper. He sounds like my friend Patrick, it, <laughs> who is who is white and raps, but is not like corny. He's very cool, but he, he just we always make fun of him because he sounds like he gargles shards of glass. <laughs> I understand it's a condition, but is it like a life threatening condition? spasmatic dysphonia i know it's called uh i think it might have to do with vocal cords and like them tightening up or something and he can't loosen them i know he has to like it gets better if he talks more throughout the day so first thing in the morning it's just you know yo yo turn my monitor up yo he sounds like a (laughs) he sounds like he's about to spit hot fire i don't know (laughs) what it is like dmx or something yeah Next president, RFK. That's my prediction. That's my somewhat contrarian prediction. But hey, I mean, <laughs> nobody thought Trump was going to win. And what I mean, at a minimum, I think there's a decent chance that in November, there's going to be a few states where RFK is ahead of Biden. And so the, you know, the Democrats aren't going to know what to do. They're going to be like, because the, they're conditioned to be like, vote Biden no matter what, especially if you're in a swing state. But what if it's a swing state where if you vote Biden, you could potentially throw it to Trump, you know? Yeah. Like tell you to vote for RFK to keep out Trump. Ooh, interesting. I don't know, man. Uh, I feel like Biden can't, like has no shot at winning, which is just really weird going into this because there's like, built in you're just kind of not allowed to not have the incumbent so mm-hmm. the math all seems to me that trump is going to win but then like there's like the primary thing happening in colorado where he can't be on the ballot oh, i was for the primary i i think that it was just for the primary and i feel oh, like okay. people are celebrating too quick and it's going to get overturned and then it's going to make him look good and he's going to be the president again yeah and also like if if he's taken off the ballot i don't know i'm not i have a very basic level understanding <coughs> of the legal framework here but it seems to me like they would be able to just nominate another republican for that party for the Colorado Republican Party, who's like, if I win Colorado, I'm going to give all my electors to Trump. Or they, they have electors who are like, where Trump stands. You know? Yeah, or, or they can do like the write-in campaign thing where they, they hand out stamps with like Trump on them outside and stuff. Right. Which they, or just, they didn't. Just have Donald Trump Jr. be on the ballot and you get a little plausible deniability there. Be like, oh, which one do we mean? We'll find out. 
<laughs> yeah. Yeah, I could see that. Um, I don't know. The election sounds like it's going to be a shit show, man. I haven't been thinking about it much. It does. There's no, there's no Bernie or anything this time around. It, like I've been kind of checked out. Yeah. Joe Stein running again, but uh, that'll be interesting to see. Now there's now there's a menu, a bevy of options for disaffected left wing uh, (laughs) voters. So that'll be. I want to get an actual debate going next year uh, or in the fall um, about who to who to vote for because I don't know. We'll see. Yeah, there's a Cornell. He's still in it, right? There's like a bunch of third party weirdos. <clears throat> yeah. And we might see, I, I mean, I honestly do. I'm not a fan of RFK at all, but uh, I do think there's, because people are fatigued, right? This is the first time since 1956 that we ostensibly are going to have the same two guys as last time on the major party uh, tickets. And, you know, people want to shake it up, right? We want some, American voters tend to want new stuff. Uh, usually, um, more, less so in a when an incumbent is up for re-election. But Trump just lost. He, you know, he didn't change. He didn't really drain the swamp. Like I could see, I could see RFK catching fire. But uh, that's just me trying to be a <laughs> contrarian pundit and get my my cloud up for that. And just I'm just like hedging my bets, really, so I can come back to this podcast and say I told you so when like calamity breaks loose and that if this actually happens. Yeah, no, I I kind of feel like it's not going to. <laughs> I feel like there, this is a very boring election, and that we're trying to make something interesting happen. But it's just Trump's going to win again. I mean, Which maybe, I, but they've slowly gotten or quickly gotten like exceedingly more ridiculous as time, like twenty sixteen to twenty twenty. Like, yeah, maybe it'll go back to somewhat normal, but it seems like we're just going up and up and up on the insanometer. Yeah, it's off the charts, the insanometer. The brainometer. I well, I guess <laughs> Trump winning again isn't that that's not not that's not not wacky. That is weird. Like that's gonna be weird, but it's just like it just speaks to how like beleaguered and like defeated we all are because we're like, okay, the weirdest thing in the world is happening again. Right. Boring. Yeah, yeah I mean that's it could happen and it would be it would be bad. I, I there's um a piece not to get too bogged down in 2024 like minor uh theoretical not even real life candidates yet, but there's an article in in these times from Gabe Winant saying uh Andy Levin should run. Um who's a congressman from Michigan who got pushed out by APAC and uh, is is uh Jewish and pro labor and you know to Biden's left, but like the problem with it, a lot of these and people are throwing around Rashida Tlaib's name. And the problem is always getting these people to actually do it. And in Rashida Tlaib's case, she's like, I would get assassinated. I'm not going to run for president. That might happen without her running for president, man. Shit is so hot right now. Yeah. But I, and it suffice to say, would love a left wing challenge to Biden, but not, not holding out hope. And And I don't even think that it would, in all likelihood be worth investing um, time and money into. It's just, it, it's too bad. We don't have that. Like the closest thing is Marianne Williamson and she's pretty bad on an issue uh, that we're going to talk about on the show today. Is she, is there still time for me to register? Cause there's me. 
I could run, you know? Oh, yeah, we were but, supposed to do that, yeah, as a libertarian. <laughs> I think right. so. All right, I don't I'm see looking, why not. It's I'm not looking. even 2024 yet. Oh, right, yeah, it's a whole year out. Okay, I'm going to get on that this weekend. That'll be my, <laughs> I'm going to put that on my whiteboard in my apartment. Run for president. Right under, buy a gun. <laughs> Sometimes they go together. Uh, you could hire yourself as your own security. Yeah. Pay yourself, because... It's hard to pay candidates, apparently, and then yeah, get the gun. Yeah, I forgot about that. No, we're gonna we should do it. It'll be fun, and maybe I'll win. You know, or everyone, maybe you'll get assassinated. That could also happen. That would also be kind of nice, just to finally <laughs> finally rest and stop having to think about all this bullshit. Yeah. Uh, um. <clears throat> before we get into our little Christmas present today for the audience, hello, I'm Jake. That's Anders. Anders Lee here. This is bought damn America. It's Christmas. Uh, Actually, can here. I test out? Can I test out? Some, can I run something by you? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. What sounds? I guess the least worst. I got Anders Lee here. I'm trying to maybe f- make some adjustments to my name because, as we've discussed, there's a famous hockey player with the same name. Ooh. So I'm gonna start throwing in middle name, middle names potentially. Oh, I, I I saw you tweeting about this. It's very exciting. Yeah, Anders James Lee. Anders James McGrain Lee, Anders J. Lee, or Anders J.M. Lee here? I think it's hands down Anders J. Lee. You sound like Homer J. Simpson when you say it like that. Okay. It does have a nice kind of kind of vert to it with the J in the middle there. So Anders maybe. J. Lee. That, it flows, man. Okay. I, the flow is good, but there's just, I just, uh, I feel like I'm leaving out my full name, which in all fairness, my mom doesn't like it when I use my full middle name. She's like, I never intended for you to go by <laughs> the entire middle name. And then I'm like, why did you give me two middle names then? And she <laughs> says, just to have it in there. Like for what then? If I'm not going to use it, I don't quite understand the logic, but I guess I should go by her wishes and just be Anders J. Lee. That's weird, man. That's weird that your mom would give you that name and then tell you not to use it. Yeah. I mean, there is, it makes some sense because, so she likes to say, she has a different last name from my father. They're married. And she likes to say, he didn't take my name. It's kind of like a second wave feminist thing to like keep your last name. Uh-huh. Um, but they did not do, and I appreciate this, they did not do the hyphenated name thing. Because it's that's just not a sustainable practice. You get people with like two last names. Two of them get married. Is the kid going to have four last names? Like this is in 50 years. What the hell is going to happen? Um, so what she did instead was gave me James, grandfather's first name. Uh, and then Mick Grain, which is her last name, because she just wanted to pass it on somehow. Um, but it's it's I guess just gonna die. That's Go weird. Away. Yeah. Uh, having your mom's maiden name in your name makes, in theory, it possibly easy to break into your bank account if everyone knows that your mother's maiden name is that. Well, yeah, but the trick is it's her. She kept it's not her maiden name because she's still her last name. And that really confuses the identity thieves is second wave feminism. They're like, wait, <laughs> they're married and they have different last names. What the hell's going on? Last how name many, is not even hyphenated. What? How many hyphens do I put in this damn thing? <laughs> no, I'll never get the Anders Lee, Anders J. Lee fortune. <laughs> <laughs> there is an Anders Lee fortune is the, the crazy thing. He might be a J too. I don't even know the, the rich Anders Lee. Um, so 
I, I could get some identity. That's maybe why I got scammed is because they thought I was the hockey player. <laughs> yeah. Give us all of your giant trophies. <laughs> uh, damn. Uh, Merry Christmas, everyone. It's Christmas. It's a weird Christmas to be doing a podcast because there is an ongoing genocide happening in the world. So it's like what do we do a wacky episode about the Grinch, you know? <laughs> uh, I, mean, I don't know. All I'm saying is people killing, people dying, children hurt, hear them crying. You practice <laughs> what you preach. You turn the other cheek. It's an old Christmas uh, saying for a biblical time, actually an old Palestinian Christmas hymn. <laughs> don't put that on them. That's unfair. They're already being <laughs> genocided. Don't also make people think that they're the black-eyed peas. <laughs> That's why they're being genocided. Because they think they've got Fergie over there. She's underneath the hospital. Did you see that Like the there's a Washington Post thing, investigation? I think it's Washington Post. There's an investigation that came out that said, that said there's, no, there's nothing underneath the Al-Shifa hospital. No, but I it's just like- yesterday's news because no one's talking about that anymore. Yeah, um, I don't even know which hospital. There, there's no the, like if they fucking moved on from that hospital after like faking those pictures and saying like we found a gun in here, therefore it's a Hamas headquarters, and immediately pivoted to no the the Hamas headquarters is actually in the south somewhere. After they cleared everyone out of that area and then like destroyed the terrain, like part of what Israel is doing is making the making Gaza unlivable. So that like people can't even return there after all this, so they have to leave, and they're just going to keep kicking the can down the road and going like, "Oh, the, actually, it's in the south, so we have to go to this exact same procedure in the south," and it's just fucking infuriating. Also, something I read yesterday is that more the IDF has killed more journalists since October seventh than the entire than died in the entire Vietnam War. 63 journalists died in the Vietnam War. 64 journalists have been killed by the IDF since October. Isn't that crazy? Jeez. God, so is this the same hospital that they said they didn't bomb? Or they're like, that was somebody else? And was that the same one where they're like, oh, if we did bomb it, it's because Hamas was headquartered there? Or are these two different hospitals? Uh, These are different hospitals. This is the one that they like infiltrated and then said that there was a, a tunnel underneath oh, but there okay. wasn't there's been a lot of different hospitals involved yeah. in all of this it's very confusing right it's this is like uh primetime television in the 90s all these hospitals but they they love blowing them up or infiltrating them that's that's that you would think yeah and like with vietnam too you would think there's certain things that you would try to not try to avoid killing journalists bombing hospitals but they they have no chill. Um, it, it's really, it's amazing when people are like, oh, well, imagine what they could do if they really wanted to. And yeah, I guess they could nuke Gaza, but that would also be bad for them because they're like right on top of Gaza. But they're basically doing everything short of that. Yeah, I know the defense of like, this isn't a genocide because they could, they could just crush these people is uh, like, well, it- I'm like they're they're not nuking Gaza because that would there's a line where they have they have to do it a certain way right to make it like sellable and not you know not actually push the boundaries of what U.S. sponsorship allows and stuff like that. 
I, yeah. why, fucking, why even engage with questions like that? It's like so obvious that, that reality is just subjective and people are just right. choosing to live in a world where, no, they're they're good because World War II happened and shit. Yeah, I mean, you had the deputy mayor of Jerusalem on uh, British television the other night who was <clears> like, <throat> she was asked, uh, what, what about this church that got bombed in Gaza? Did you need to do that? And she was like, I will have you know there are no churches in Gaza because there are no Christians in Gaza. They all got pushed out. But it's just one of these things. It's like that's common wisdom in a lot of Israel. It's like there's no Christians in Gaza. It doesn't matter that there's literally footage of people praying and being Christian in a church and it's getting fucking shelled, you know, Uh, alternate facts. Well, before we get into the saddest thing in the world, what else is going on in the news? Uh, Eric Adams up to anything wacky this week? The sentence police are on his case. I don't know if you saw it. But, uh, <laughs> yeah. This is a department he uh, was, was a veteran of at one point. And, uh, and if you, yeah, like when he was in charge of it, the sentence quality in New York was um, took a severe dip. But uh, now he's now he's the mayor and has has funded this department uh and they're going a lot of people don't know that the sentence police were actually trained by the grammar nazis (laughs) that makes sense um yeah he was on the local news show this week and was asked how he would say sum up his 2023 in one word he was asked to use one word and he chose new york (laughs) <laughs> if we're going to be uh, even beyond sentence uh, Nazis, grammar Nazis, um, I, that is two words. Uh, New York is two words. I don't know <laughs> if you could uh, maybe make the argument that because it's a proper noun, it should count as one word. I, I, that's going to have to go to that's going to have to go to the local sentence court, I guess. But uh, he, he then goes on to say. This is an amazing city because when you wake up, you could see a plane hitting the our trade center. Um, and he says our trade center, New York's trade center, which we have a new one, I believe. Uh, so I think he's giving a premonition that there's going to be another 9-11. Um, or you could see somebody opening a new business. So these are the two kinds of New York moment is, is 9-11 or <laughs> ribbon cutting ceremony for like a wine shop or whatever. Yeah, uh, those are both things that were listed in the Jay-Z song about New York. <laughs> Airplane flying into the World Trade Center. Someone opening up a business <laughs> in New York. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, and then he's asked about it and he's, he yeah complains about the <clears throat> sentence police, which is just, I mean, this is the same guy. It's funny you say grammar Nazis because this is the same guy who a few months ago was accusing DSA of flashing swastikas and saying anti-Semitic stuff at a rally. And if, if the money was there, I think uh, a lawyer might get hired for a defamation case and they would have good cause. But uh, there's, you know, there's sparse resources or that sort of thing. But that is just a ridiculous claim. And then he followed that up with what he was asking about. It's like, well, I didn't check the, the card or the membership for every single person who was there. And, you know, it's it's because that's a factual error. And he's complaining about a sort of sentence policing in that case. But this is just a really weird thing to say. And there's no no hesitation. I, I really do admire it. He goes ahead and instead of saying, you know, maybe I should have rephrased that or that was odd. 
uh, he complains about the sentence police, which uh, who were funded by by school cuts ostensibly. <laughs> there, there's no police for saying weird things, unfortunately. Otherwise, his ass would be in jail. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We also got. Did you see this? Z-Way interview with George Santos, another New York politics uh, staple. I didn't actually watch it. Was it good? I thought it was good, yeah. I mean, and I've said that I think Eric Adams, the sooner he gets indicted, the more likely this is to happen. But if he has legal troubles, has to resign. Uh, Similarly to George Santos, I think they're going to have an AM radio talk show together where they tackle New York politics. This is destined to happen. But um, yeah, Z-Way sat down with George Santos and uh, there's a, a few parts that went viral. One is what, one of which is he's asked to name or, or respond to rather civil rights icons. And the first one Z-Way mentions is Marsha P. Johnson, who was a transgendered activist from, I believe the seventies. And uh, George Santos says very uh, respectful and honorable. And my friend Michelle pointed out, he meant to say, respectable, but he said respectful, uh, which is kind of funny, but uh, he gets called out because he clearly doesn't know who Marsha P. Johnson is. (laughs) But then he goes on to be like, he's asked uh, to respond to James Baldwin and then Harvey Milk. And he's like, kind of with this uh, smirk on his face, he's like, who is James Baldwin? I, I, Harvey Milk, I have no idea who that is. And I have a theory that so clearly he doesn't know who Marsha P. Johnson is, but this man's first instinct is always to lie. So when he was <laughs> when she moved on to the second and third people, he's I think he does know who they are. I genuinely think he knows who James Baldwin and Harvey Milk are because they are yeah. more famous than Marsha P. Johnson. That's, that's true. Uh, but he he made a calculation very quickly in his head that it'll make him seem more credible if he pretends to not know who they are after he just got caught in a lie, you know? Yeah. Or like if he said, he just says that to every person that you ask about, then it seems like he's doing a bit, which makes it then retroactively. He can say, I did know who Marsha P. Johnson was. Right. I was doing this bit where I say, I don't know who that is. Every time you throw these man, he's con artists are just like this. So fascinating because they're, they're very calculating, you know, mm-hmm. in the moment like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's always, he's a shark. He, he has to keep the lies going. Yeah. He's cool. I think he's going to have a great post-political career. <laughs> he's been doing cameos where he dresses up as Santa Claus. <laughs> and he says, Santos Claus has come to town. Right. And I'm tempted to purchase one. I'm entirely honest with you. Hey, yeah. I still have to look up how much they are, but I, I guess I should get it in before the price goes way up, which it does. <laughs> he, uh, he did have a great tweet uh, the other night where he's like, he's talking, he tags the Capitol Police and he's like, hey, Capitol Police, you need to investigate the entire building for sex scandals. He goes on yada, yada, yada. I suggest wiring the building two times over and make sure there are cameras in the cages. And then he ends it. I don't know why I found this part so funny, but he ends it in all caps. Capital sex scandals, one exclamation point, and then the handover face emoji. Just the way he, <laughs> he, he sums up the tweet that he just typed out with capital sex scandals. 
Oh, oh, did you hear a second one of those happened? Oh, the, the twink getting effed in the A? Yeah, apparently, apparently apparently, it happened again. Everyone is posting that meme of the guy telling George Bush a second tower has been hit. Uh-huh. Uh, but it's because the second uh, butt got fucked in the Senate or whatever. Um, really? Everyone's saying they're twinks. I prefer to refer to this as Ottergate. I know that's not actually accurate, but it does sound cool. And there's, is there footage of the second one? I don't know. I'm waiting, uh, putting my hand on my headset and going, I'm, I'm, I'm awaiting further word on whether there yeah. is a footage of a second twink. I mean, it could have been the same, same guy twice too. That's possible. That'd be so fucking cool. <laughs> oh man. That's so much. I, I I enjoy that um, desecrating the uh, house of the law has become such a thing in the last few years. Uh-huh. You know, you got J6 and then this. I saw this thing the other day <laughs> when they investigated uh, J6. Um, someone shared this because they were like, you need to know that they can search your Google shit like your google searches mm. or whatever they can subpoena that which is good to know for all of us who are in resistance you know yada 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 but um <laughs> the things that they did find when they they subpoenaed the google searches of a bunch of j6 guys were like uh the just googling can you take a gas mask on the plane oh i saw this yeah can you take a knife on a plane and then one of them is like wow that uh that el- escalated quickly. And then the next one is hands burning from uh, tear gas and shit yeah. like that. It tells a little story. It's great. Nice. Yeah. Um. Anyway, anyway, any other Christmas presents under the tree here before we get into the big horrible one that I have? Uh, let's dive into it. Let's, uh, let's take out those scissors and pull anxiously at that uh really strong string that you know that pretty string that's impossible to p- pull apart or cut you gotta get the, the skizzers out for it okay you really you're wasting your own time trying to untangle that thing oh okay. you're imagine this listener you are one of those kids from the 90s you think it's a Nintendo 64 underneath the tree. You're like, oh, my God, ah, you're tearing it over. What do you and you open it? And what do you get? There's been a war on Palestine for 100 years, and I read a book about it. It's a genocide. That's what's under the tree. Um, I read this book called uh, The Hundred Years War on Palestine by an author who I can't remember his name off the top of my head. I'll look it up. But uh yeah, I figured, um, I don't know, I, I guess, like, when it comes to, his name is Rashid Khalidi, uh, when it comes to podcasting, I, I think 101 shit is very important, because we are living in a world where it's, people have to make a decision about how they feel about this, and I think, uh, you know, we're nerds, and so we've been reading about Israel and Palestine for years, and uh, a lot of people haven't, and it's easy to move quickly past the basic history of what happened here and just get caught up in 
the culture war and all the little treats they give you for arguing, you know, they give you little tools for arguing with the other side on the internet and you just sort of get lost in that shit. And, uh, I don't know. I talked to a lot of you or I'm like, I bet you don't know what the Nakba is. I bet you don't know who, you know, Theodore Herzl is. And, uh, the only way to really get your head around this is to just read a long, depressing book about <laughs> people who have been tortured forever. Um, so anyway, I got into it. I think this is going to be maybe a two part series or something like that because it's a lot, but, um, yeah, let's go back to the beginning. Uh, not the beginning, beginning, but the beginning of the Zionist story, I guess. I, there's another book when I was looking at books about this that's uh, 4,000 years of Palestinian history. And oh, I'm boy. sorry, that is for a different podcast. I do not know what was happening in Palestine 4,000 <laughs> years ago. <laughs> Dinosaurs, maybe? I think that was longer than 4,000, but... Yeah, I suppose at some so. point, at some point, there were probably dinosaurs. That's a good point. In fact, they should own Palestine. It's their indigenous land, you know. How about That's what that? Jurassic Park was actually about. If you think about it, three state solution, <laughs> one for Israel. Oh, is that what is that what Dinotopia was going for? In those books <laughs> that you know. The suffix "topia" is oddly like it does feel like it could, it could be adjacent to like nazi literature or something or mm. or something like this yeah no i dinotopia might have been really messed up it might have been like the screed of um a really demented racist who his thing was in the future dinosaurs will replace the jews i don't know i think i'm gonna actually now i'm fucking i'm on a gonna be on a tear now dinotopia i'm gonna order a book right now and find a Poor soul to give it to for Christmas. It's, you will give one of those gifts where it's like you really actually just want to read this again, but you pawn it off as you're giving it to somebody. I guess my dad's <laughs> getting a Dinotopia book. That's pretty cool. Yeah, well, you can just read it first and then give it to him. Yeah, they'll never know. Um, blah, 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 blah. So, 1895. There's this guy Theodore Herzl who mm-hmm. is uh, officially the modern founder of Zionism, he holds the the title is a, where people like to pin it. And I think that he, if he were alive today, he would, he would uh, agree with that. Probably brag about it. Um, he wrote letters to Yusuf Dia, the mayor of Jerusalem, where he explicitly argues colonialist shit, like uh, that Zionism will actually help the indigenous population. And, that also conflictingly Palestinians will have to be spirited away to other countries uh, at the time. And not in a fun Miyazaki type of way. No, they don't get to ride that giant uh, Totoro monster thing okay. or make friends with that scary demon that turns out to be their friend later. Um, so around the end of the 1800s, the uh, population of Palestine was about 5%. Jewish. There were Jews living in Palestine. There were also Christians and Muslims. It was like a mixed thing. Um, there's a big myth that uh, Palestine wasn't a place before Zionists showed up, as in like pal- like the word Palestine, right? Mm. Um, 
In the early 20th century, it was a mixed community of Muslims, Arabs, and non-Zionist Jews with like colleges and stuff like that. Ashkenazi Europeans like David Ben-Gurion and Yitzhak, uh, Yitzhak Benvi, future figures in the Zionist government, lived there and initially sought integration, studied in Istanbul, stuff like that. Um, I think that like part of what's going on when you hear people say that uh, – Oh, that Palestine wasn't even a nation before, you know, before Israel showed up and did Zionism. Part of what they're using to confuse you in that statement is that, like, nationalism kind of wasn't what it was until around the time that all of this was happening. Mm. You know, how, like, Germany wasn't Germany until Right. right around this time. Um, people lived in Palestine and called it Palestine. The, the name Palestine came from like Romans uh, or Greeks. Whoops. Uh, I think it was Rome. doesn't matter though. It's fucking irrelevant to this. <laughs> um, but the idea of like nationhood for this thing that was a place that people lived who were a people came about kind of simultaneously with Zionism. That's, that's what that's Zionism is also a nationalist like project. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they're kind of two, you know, competing projects because one of them is being installed on top of the other one. And to go, well, you weren't even a country. You didn't even have the watermelon flag before that <laughs> is like kind of bullshit because it's like, well, everyone was getting that shit together around the same time. Also not true. Um, in world war one, Palestine was part of Syria. Uh, And it was ruled by the Ottomans for like 400 years until 1917 when the British were fighting the Ottomans in World War I, which is what ended the Ottoman Empire. Uh, They showed up and took over, right? So there was a Secretary of State for Foreign Affairs, a British guy named Arthur Balfour, who Uh, he did some decisions, right? Uh huh. He had this thing called the Balfour Declaration. The Balfour was the nephew of Lord Salisbury, a Tory PM, <laughs> and uh, he was the ch- uh, chief secretary in Ireland. So that's his pedigree before coming to Palestine is ruling over fucking Irish people, the UK's oldest colony. And he was so brutal in his duty in Ireland that he was referred to as bloody Balfour. <laughs> Which I, I'm not sure if that's like if that's supposed to make him sound like a butcher or that's just how British people talk. Could go either way. All right. Uh they love calling stuff bloody. They're fucking weird. Okay, so the Balfour Declaration is the initial Zionist declaration of the home of a homeland for Jews. The actual declaration never even mentions the existence of Palestinians. It's uh, really, really like colonizing and genocidal in nature in that it, it sort of like tricks you by stating all these things as if it's already living in a reality where Palestinians don't even exist anymore. And that's kind of like the seed of how they advance all of this shit legally from here it's really messed up Mm. um the declaration declares that 
only civil and religious rights will exist for the non-Jewish population. Uh, they'll be excluded from national and political rights. Those reserved for uh, those reserved for the Jewish population, which at the time was only six percent. So, six percent of the population gets to vote on everything. Pretty fucked up. Um, the British assisted starting Zionism partially because Britain wanted to limit Jewish immigration into itself. Uh, you know, at the time, England didn't want Jews immigrating into. England because everyone is still extremely anti-Semitic. So this is a project of anti-Semitism to begin with is like going, we'll give you your own place to hang out so that you don't come in and start doing these things that we suspect you of doing inside our own homeland. Um, it created mandates that birthed a Jewish exclusive sector of the economy in Palestine and injected massive capital into it. So that's another big seed of the entire problem is that uh, there's, there's like a separate economy in this tiny colonial project that the 95% of people living in Palestine are not allowed to participate in. Uh, you know, all the money is just, right there in this tiny bubble or whatever. So everyone's kept kind of poor outside of it. <sighs> um, there's a Zionist revisionist leader. This guy, Zev Jabotinsky. Jabotinsky. I'm going to butcher these names. <laughs> I'm sorry. Uh, <laughs> there's a B in there. There's a B in there. Jabotinsky. Nice. Yeah. Uh, he, he wrote that an iron wall of bayonets was necessary for the project. This is uh, oddly very normal for the time to say stuff like that. He, but he said, you referred to this iron wall all the time. Is the only way to make this project happen is if it's defended, you know, by military force. He also says something that's necessary for this is going to be an external power presiding over everything. So that at the time is England. Later it'll become the U.S. Um. Early economic and land institutions set the stage for everything. Jewish colonization associate. There was a thing called the Jewish Colonization Association. It was run by a Jewish philanthropist from uh, from Germany called or from Austria. Sorry, Baron Maurice de Hirsch. So this is all referred to as like the British Mandate period, right? Right. So then, after World War One, there is a. Uh, sort of a rise in the Palestinian national identity alongside Zionism, as I was talking about earlier, and other Arab national identities. The entire world is processing ideas of self-determination. This is a big thing post-World War I. Uh, Woodrow Wilson and Lenin both talked about this a lot. Um, but Wilson and Lenin both kind of failed to ascribe self-determination to, uh, or not ascribe, but like to lend self-determination as an idea to Palestine and places like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's sort of this period where, although like later on uh, the Soviet Union under Stalin kind of sort of wises up and realizes it's good to propagandize and, you know, it's to reach out and ally with the third world countries post-World War One, way back, 
here, no one really realizes that yet. So there's these nationalist movements happening on their own in like Korea and Ireland and India and places like that. And they're just sort of being ignored by the powers that be in a lot of ways. Palestine organizes a series of congresses to protest British rule. British rule flatly rejects, right? Other Arab states are coming under various forms of control by European powers, often with their own monarchies or authoritarian governments as go-between. So that's like kind of one of the big tragedies for Palestine is that they have like technically allies in a lot of their uh, neighboring Arab states in the people, like people in these countries, you know, popularly sympathize with um with the Palestinian struggle. And you know, a lot of the leaders of these countries also will, you know, say they do, but then at the end of the day, they always make deals with colonial governments like the French and the British and the United States. <sighs> um and that's a lot of these are you know like there's still like kings and stuff like that. Uh, let's see. In 1922, the League of Nations issues a mandate of British rule of the nation, basically ratifies uh, the language of the Balfour Declaration, gives Jewish interim government status internationally, and makes it a partner with the British. So slowly, via this British mandate government, the uh, the colonizing project, you know, that's been injected with capital and given solely political rights and stuff like that is evolves into like a junior government. Um, hmm. This is happening via the language of the Balfour declaration. Cause according to the Balfour declaration, those are the only people that did exist over there, even though they're only 5% of the population real fucked up. Uh, where are we at now? 1922. Okay. Uh, citizenship is granted to Jewish colonizers. It's denied to Palestinians who fled because of World War One. So that's another thing that happens is that like there was a war happening. If you left and then you try to come back, you're not a citizen. But these people that just showed up, they're citizens. And what so, was the and this did this have to do with uh, the Ottomans? What what was um, the significance of World War One to the region? Uh, yeah. So the British were fighting the Ottomans and. Yeah in the process came in and just set up camp in Palestine ah. and, and in the process, the Zionist project, you know, made deals with the British government to install itself in that, in that area. So the, all three of those kind of things are happening at the same time. It's like an opportune right. moment for Zionism to go, Hey, as long as you're over there, you can help us do this thing we wanted to do. Right. Yeah. Um, the 1930s, Interestingly, even though Zionism is is in effect, the population is actually kind of evening out. Like there, um, there are people immigrants or Jews immigrating to uh, to Palestine, but it's uh, it's just kind of reaching a moment where I guess if you look at this on a historical timeline, you go, oh, maybe things won't go sideways, right? But then Hitler happens and Uh-oh. the Holocaust. And there's massive Jewish immigration because of the Holocaust. Understandable, right? Yeah. Um, on an individual level, totally understandable, you know. But when you look at it like from a bird's eye view, and you go, you know, okay, so why are the rules of this immigration set up this way? That's where things get a little hinky. 
Um, so there's World War II, right? In 1936, I guess that's right before World War II, there's a massive Arab revolt against British occupation. Uh, it kills 17% of Arab males. There's a six-month general strike. I think it's like one of the longest general strikes ever. Um, this, this was aimed at Zionists, Brits, but also the feckless Arab ruling class. This is where things are kind of turning because in retrospect, like a lot of a lot of people that were mad about this from within Palestine were, you know, they're mad, obviously, at their, their like colonial rulers, but also at their their own local government who, mm-hmm. you know, in situations like this, you go, you go, why the fuck aren't you doing anything about this? You know, yeah. why are you making uh, deals to save your own ass? Stuff like that. Um, so the ruling class was formed of this thing called the Arab high committee, which sought to represent their voices, but ended up mostly just brokering the end of the strike. So that was the thing people thought, Oh, if we form this thing called the Arab high committee, maybe it'll help us like, you know, resist. And it just sort of like works as a go between. And yeah, it actually brings an end to the strike. Not good. Hmm. Uh, I think ultimately like stuff like that, like bringing an end to the strike, you know, the goal is, Oh, we're going to get some concessions, but kind of what happens throughout this entire story is those concessions usually, they don't happen to begin with, or if they do, there's stuff that just doesn't pay off or doesn't have like there's lies. Yeah. It's very sad. Um, British troops ultimately quashed the uprising. There were executions. They would do stuff like tie people to the front of trains, which is the things that they, they like started doing in Ireland. So they oh. took all the shit that they came up with Ireland and brought it over to Palestine. And was, this wasn't just like, cause they didn't want, Irish people inside the train and they had to get from point A to point B. This was like a, an act of violence. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it wasn't it was, the Irish seat. <laughs> to sit on the front of the train? Yeah. Like Spider-Man? No, I don't <laughs> think so. It, it was actually very violent. I think that usually it would kill you. Damn. Uh, or Wiley Coyote also. You might throw on the front of a train, but he usually lives because he's a cartoon. Um, in 1939, so there's this thing called the British white paper, and this is where the, the British mandate rule kind of takes a turn because, you know, as a result of the Arab revolt, um, the British actually do kind of need to give some concessions. The, the massive strike and revolt does have an effect. They also are in a situation where they need to bolster their image leading into World War II because the Axis was publishing proof of British atrocities in Palestine. So in order to be part of the Allies, the British had to kind of maintain their image, right? Because they're uh-huh. doing this brutal shit in Palestine. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it's, it's a good oppo for the Nazis to be like, okay, like, you're all so bad, right? Mm. Um. So the British white paper calls for a homeland for the Jews within within the Palestinian state, but it limits Jewish immigration. This is where the the Zionist project feels betrayed by the British because it does the most minor fucking limiting on the project. Um, It limits the Jewish, uh, it limits Jewish immigration because Jewish immigration was seen as the cause for the Arab revolts. 
neither side really loves this, though. It's kind of a, a fizzling both sidesy sort of way for the British to get out of the situation. Um, Zionists want a majority ethno state, you know, and limiting immigration is going to obviously work against that. Um, although it was essentially defending Palestine, it didn't live up to Arab leaders' demands at the time, and it went on to be the governing document of the British Mandate era. Though so, that ran until 1948 when the British left. So World War II ends. The British leave in 1948. They transfer power to the Zionists, and Israel is formed through the process of the Nakba. Uh, the Nakba is like horrible. It's yeah. uh, it's the process of founding Israel, and in in the in the same motion expelling 700,000 Palestinians, destroying villages, murdering like 250,000 people. Um, and it's, that's where Israel came from. So that's, uh, that's as far as I got in my notes today, but I think it's a good point to, uh, pick back up next time we talk about this. So that's, if you don't know where Israel came from, none of that's good, you know? Yeah, and it seems, uh, you know, I know around this, I think the time we're at at now, there's that Churchill quote that always sticks out to me when they're figuring this out, like what to do with this land, who it goes to, and he, he posits the, the theory that there are high-grade and low-grade races, and that Jews are a higher-grade race than uh, Arab Muslims. Uh is he talking about gasoline? <laughs> That's horrible. Yeah. 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 Still a celebrated figure in, in Britain. And you know, that's, that's kind of, but that, I feel like that attitude is still prevalent. It's just, people don't say it as explicitly. Yeah. Just not in those words. Right. You know, it's really disgusting. Like seeing you, you look at all this, happening in the year 2023 and you're like wow i thought these ideas were antiquated mm -hmm. but they're still coming through they're just not in the same words i mean essentially like we're just brimming with like anti-arab bigotry you know yeah and uh I don't know that like that subtle sort of Islamophobia that seeps through when you, you you listen to people like Bill Maher or whatever, and they say they're criticizing you know religion in general or something like that. Uh -huh. It seems like well, it's why is it so specific? <laughs> why are you so specifically uh, aggravated about this one? It's all kind of there, and it's it's interesting like the way this sort of stuff reformulates in order to for its own survival you know like i was kind of thinking about the the new jim crow oddly when mm. i was reading this and like yeah. the argument made that like a lot of the practices of slavery never end that ended they just sort of like reformulated in the new world we live in and that's kind of what's going on here because one of the the strangest things about zionism existing today and having like support from our government today is that this is a this is a 19th century project like colonization that doesn't really happen anymore if it does happen it happens like like 
in the form of neoliberal extraction. Like right. states like, you know, the United States and, and you know, whatever other polar powers you want to posit exist in the world today, don't just straight up take over a place anymore. Um, that's kind of gauche <laughs> after having two major world wars it's frowned upon it's cause for war there's all these like un deals and certain rules and stuff like that that stop you from doing it so what do we do well we don't need to take over places if we just install our economy in a place and then go great have your little nationalism have a soccer team do whatever you want uh we technically rule this place because we extract all the wealth but we don't have to say that out loud even to ourselves like americans don't believe you know that that is a form of ruling other countries but right. this is a project left over from fucking 100 years ago. <laughs> and it's, it's so weird to see people carrying it out and having to figure out ways to rationalize like, oh, no, that's normal. Like, you're allowed to do this. You know, this is cowboy right. shit. Yeah, no. And, and people will point to Iraq. But I think that's a good example of like the, the reason that that's now seen as a, a failure by uh liberals primarily is that they they did exactly what you're that that they didn't do it in the sort of they didn't continue sort of the clintonite model which is like undermining it from afar through like economic means which is arguably neocolonialism but they they did they they went the fucking 19th century bootstrap route which is what they're doing in in gaza right now and it's yeah it's it's not it should be long gone as a practice yeah um, so later on in the story, I'm sorry, I didn't get all the way through because I, I took a lot of notes and I kind of, it's hard to gauge how long something's right. going to go, but, um, we'll, I'll cap it off next time we talk. But, uh, I mean, it's really interesting that this whole thing was set up, you know, in this specific moment via the use of the British and then they fucking left and there's a moment where there's kind of a question mark hanging over this going, what, what are they going to do? Because that, that fucking guy did say like, we need an iron wall of bayonets. We need a fucking power presiding over this. And the tragic conclusion of that is that the United States becomes that actor eventually, but it takes a while. And it's really like, <laughs> you know, it, it happens for material reasons, but it also happens because of assholes like Henry Kissinger. Like he is literally like the main pivot point in this later on because he starts to make these deals uh in secret with the plo which is the organization that um preceded hamas and hezbollah and it was you know the the, the yasser arafat was the head of and you know became the main uh tool for organizing the palestinian people and negotiating with the you know the united states and the un and stuff like that um their story is really tragic and they get fucked by fucking Henry Kissinger, man. He's everywhere in history. It's real sad. Yeah. Anyway, Merry Christmas. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Christmas colors, red and green and white, arguably. And black, like Santa Claus's boots. There you go. And his coal eyes. No, that's Frosty the Snowman. He has human eyes, Santa Claus. (laughs) I do wonder if we're going to get an Eve Barlow tweet this year that's like, I saw Christmas colors and thought it was a Palestinian. <laughs> oh, man. She's crazy. Um, God, she said something cool the other day, but I forgot what it was. <laughs> anyway, you got plans for Christmas, Durs? 
I am oh. uh, going to be my my girlfriend who uh, is not uh, Christian, traditionally not a Christmas celebrator, but she's going to be coming with me to Minnesota, do a little gift exchange. And then after that, the day after, little plug here, we have a comedy show in uh, Minneapolis at Bryant Lake Bowl, White Elephant, which is holiday themed, not strictly Christmas themed, but holiday themed. We're going to do like a, like a fun little it's going to be comedians doing stand up, but then at the end, we're going to have like a fun little holiday gift swap. So I'll put uh, a link in the show notes for that. Be uh, December 26th, Brian Lake Bowl at seven central time. Cool. Um, I have a show coming up in the new year, uh, end of next month. I'm throwing a big party for my birthday here in Los Angeles. Nice. I'll have details on that to come. But if you're in LA, come on out and hang out. It's going to be, I think we're going to do an indie sleaze DJ thing. That's going to be the theme is, uh, it's, uh, 1999 or 2001 or whatever again. And the, uh, the strokes are playing and there's Polaroids and stuff and American apparel war crimes are happening. Uh, yeah, it'll be fun. Okay, well, I'm going to go lay down. I'm very tired today. I think that's it. Ho, ho, ho. It's finished.